This podcast is brought to you by SMA, provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30-plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility-scale projects completed worldwide, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, visit www.sma-america.com. For the week of October 16th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In the District of Columbia, I'm Stephen Lacey, your Master of Ceremonies and a Senior Editor with Green Tech Media. This week, we're talking about the growing and somewhat unknown world of solar operations and maintenance. What happens to all those power plants after they get installed? We'll tell you. Then later in the show, we'll discuss a new plan to replace net metering in San Antonio, and we'll talk about the legacy of Michael Peavy, the outgoing and embattled president of California's Public Utility Commission. But first, let me introduce my two co-hosts, who, as usual, are with me to educate you, to pontificate, to elucidate, all of the above. With me in the district is Catherine Hamilton, a partner at 38 North Solutions and a policy expert who's uh, seemingly been on the board of every national clean energy organization created in the last 20 years. Catherine, how's it going over there? Just great. I wish I could say we were also going to celebrate with something relating to baseball, but I'm afraid I'm still uh, nursing my wounds. And I'm sorry for those listeners in San Francisco, but I simply cannot root for your team. Well, at least we can cheer the Royals on. Yeah, that's cool. And actually, I have a bunch of family in St. Louis, so I'm always kind of rooting for them, too. And uh, completing the circle, the I guess the triangle, is Jigger Shah, who's coming to us from New York City. He's the founder of Sun Edison and the author of Creating Climate Wealth. And uh, Jigger, I saw that you were, you were on MSNBC last Friday talking to Chris Hayes about the demise of coal, wrapping up uh, a week-long series from Coal Country. That was a pretty good interview. Yeah, I was with Bob Kincaid. Chris Hayes is, is one of the smartest guys on television. Uh, and uh, we're not going to be in coal country today. We're in solar country, and we've got a guest with us to kick off the show. It is Chuck Smith, the executive vice president of services at the inverter company SMA America, the largest inverter manufacturer in the world, actually. He is uh, joining us from outside Sacramento in Rockland, California. Chuck, how's everything out in Rockland? Stephen, it's going well, and good to be with the group today. And Catherine, we're only an hour away from the Giants, so. Uh, Are you sorry, a Giants we're, fan? We're, we're, well, yes, we're rooting that way. <laughs> <laughs> you got to think before you speak, Catherine. We have a Giants fan on the line. No, I get it. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> I'm a Cubs fan, and no one cares. <laughs> Here we go. Our listeners, they, they may know the name SMA, not just because it's the largest inverter manufacturer, but because they are a sponsor of this show, as you heard in the ad at the beginning. And so this is where the big disclosure comes in. And I guess I've already made the disclosure because SMA is a financial supporter of this podcast. But we didn't invite Chuck on to do an ad here. We are genuinely interested in why an inverter company like SMA is getting deeply into the operations and maintenance business and whether... It, it makes sense and how that stacks up against all the other varieties of companies getting into this burgeoning uh, area. 
So that's what we're going to talk about today. What happens after all these solar plants are installed? Who's going to take care of them? There are more than 150 gigawatts of solar plants that will need to be maintained globally by 2017, according to our numbers at GTM Research and Solichamba Consulting. And someone's got to take care of them, clean the panels, fix any equipment problems, replace the inverter, keep the solar plant churning out kilowatt hours. And, and we're seeing big project developers small independent contractors, monitoring and software firms, and big inverter companies all trying to get on the action here. So that brings us to you, Chuck. Why would an equipment manufacturer, which hasn't historically had the um, the contracting or maybe the mechanical expertise needed for maintaining plants, like, say, a traditional EPC, get into the business of O&M? Well, Stephen, that's a great question. So one of the things I, I've been with SMA about four years now, and one of the things that we realized is as an equ original equipment manufacturer for the inverter, a lot of the issues that are occurring on the plants are being reported through the inverter as the sort of the brains on the plant. And we discovered that um, there's really very little knowledge out there regarding what those conditions really mean. Uh, how you get after them, how you isolate the issue, and more importantly, how you get uh, the system back up and functional very quickly. So we started thinking about that relative to just the base services that we offer um, and really felt that we could add a tremendous amount of value to the equation uh, by coming in with an O&M solution. And we were requested by quite a number of our customers to do so. So we basically entered this space about 18 months ago to really optimize the output of these plants, uh, again, with the inverter being the brains of the plant. So that was sort of the catalyst. It, it, it came from a realization that um, the information flowing through our inverters was not being utilized effectively, and we had some unique competency to use that information in a way that could optimize the output of these power plants. Chuck, given the um, growth in solar and the, as Stephen says, 150 gigawatts under management by 2017, where do you where are you all looking to grow? What what is the regional and global growth look like for you all for O and M? Yeah, so we're we're a, a global company. We've got uh, twenty two subsidiaries, uh, and when we say twenty two subsidiaries, uh, these are not really partner models. These are organic SMA people. We've got a whole other extension of partner capabilities. So we're uh, actively uh, engaged in you know all the primary regions: uh, EMEA, Americas, Asia Pacific. If you take a look at Cedric's report, and uh, for those of you that are on the call that haven't seen that, uh, he did an excellent report last November on O&M, looking at the, the markets, the competition, um, where things were headed from an overall um, perspective relative to this industry. You take and a look just at just to your, stop you there, that's Cedric yeah. who uh, from Soli Chamba Consulting who worked with us on a report outlining the growth in the global O&M industry. So just wanted to give some context there. Yeah, so if you look at the market, and the way that they they had uh, delineated that, you, you take the three regions and they did a, like a pre-1012, what was the installed base and where was the growth coming from? So we're sitting here in you know pre-2012 with about 20 gigawatts installed worldwide. And th these are megawatt scale plants, so uh, one megawatt and greater. You take a look at EMEA uh, by 2017, so basically five years out, you're gonna see that number more than double up to about 35 gigawatts. The Americas is a 10X growth market. So it, it's sitting at about two gigawatts pre-2012. It'll be growing to almost 30 gigawatts. And then Asia Pacific is actually the most explosive market, uh, sitting at about four, three and a half gigawatts uh, pre-2012, all the way up to 
over 80 gigawatts. Now, there's some debate on whether Asia Pacific will actually grow that quickly or not. So we're basically following the need that our customers have. Uh, so we sell uh, inverters across the globe. Uh, so we have active O&M uh, policies, engagements, and offers in all three regions. Um, my particular uh, expertise in the area that I own on behalf of SMA, I'm the executive vice president of service for the Americas, and we've seen very explosive growth here. Um, and we're beginning to get some traction in Asia Pacific. Um, we're also doing some very interesting things as a company uh, with some partnerships in EMEA. Uh, so it really tracks uh, w with the market growth. You think about when we built um, the O&M business at Sun Edison, I was just actually with Wells Fargo uh, on Tuesday, and they were saying that of all the portfolios they have, the Sun Edison portfolio is, you know, around 102 or 103% of expected output, and the rest are sort of in the 90s. And I think the only difference, frankly, was just that someone responded to inverter outages and cleaning and that kind of stuff within hours instead of days. Um, I'm just trying to understand, you know, are, do you guys really think that um, this is really a boots on the ground exercise? I mean, is this really just about being responsive to inver uh, inverter and other sort of failures in the systems, or is this actually a more holistic offering? Yeah, Jigger, I, I see it really as a more holistic uh, offering, um, and I think it all st it all starts, and, and you guys do a, a really good job out there, the Sun Edison team uh, on the O&M front. One of the things that we uh, feel very strongly about is it all starts with a very proactive approach uh, with the monitoring and the analytics. And what we observe, and again, I'm speaking on behalf of SMA, we see a lot of monitoring capabilities out there, but they're just simply a direct pass-through of an alarm without really any quali uh, qualification, any type of analytics to understand what may be causing that issue. So by getting after this 24 by 7, 365 on the proactive monitoring side, many of these issues, what we've observed about 80% of the uh, alarms that come through a power plant come through the inverter. Um, about 50% of those alarms have to do with the inverter itself and the other have to do with something on the balance of system. So. We've used uh, really proactive techniques on the monitoring and analytics side to know exactly uh, when we need to engage and to really increase our response time if there is indeed an outage situation that requires uh, boots on the ground. Uh, the commercial front, right, th those are not boots on the ground. A lot of the smaller distributed plants are not boots on the ground. The large mega, you know, uh, really large utility scale plants are definitely boots on the ground. And I literally have story after story of uh, situations where we've come out where uh, the EPC wasn't sure where to go with it, the utility uh, wasn't willing to respond, and we use the inverter as a tool to solve those issues. Um, I'd love to hear some of those. Are they, do any of them involve animals or plants uh, growing? Or Yeah, yeah, we've all heard this story. I think my, my favorite story, I was sitting uh, with one of our clients at uh, dinner one night, and he said they, they just kept losing a raise, and uh, they had some sheep out there from a local farmer doing the, the vegetation mitigation. And the way that the uh, the combiner uh, disconnects were set up, the sheep were going there and sort of, let's say, scratching their uh, <laughs> their rear end and actually turning off the disconnect. So uh, it, it's amazing <laughs> the kind of issues you hit out there. So they had sheep, uh, you know, bringing down strings at a time. Uh, I'm curious about the strategy here. So. The days of um, being a pure play inverter manufacturer, you know, I, I would say some could some would argue that they're they're numbered. Prices are dropping like fifteen to twenty percent a year for inverters. Um, major manufacturers have been hit hard financially, similar to the troubles we've seen in the solar 
module space. And, you know, while cost can improve, there's not a lot you can do um, on the cost side to disrupt the technology to dramatically improve margins. So is this move into O&M a signal that SMA or maybe inverter companies broadly need to expand beyond their traditional business? Well, I I think if you look at... uh... One of my backgrounds before coming to SMA, I spent 25 years with Hewlett Packard Company in the IT industry, and you know the the hardware eventually in all mature industry, right? It's sort of a race to the bottom, and as you said, the margins start to uh, to collapse a bit. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be critically important components from folks like us. But yeah, we really do believe, and and we're seeing this uh, in spades that um, there's a lack of quality service providers out there. And I think there's a consolidation going on in the market. You know, a couple of years ago, everybody was rushing in, right? You had people that were working on a hot tub uh, at eight o'clock and on a PV farm at uh, at three o'clock, and they they knew no nothing about what they were dealing with. Um, we're seeing a lot of those vendors that have poured in. Uh, they haven't been performing well. They haven't been delivering on their commitments, and they're starting to fade. and And it takes a you know a year, eighteen, two year cycle to to sort of weed out. Uh, the poor performers. And what we're seeing is some of the, the larger players really start to combine forces, establish appropriate partnerships, and go after this business and try to really mature it. Uh, my view here is that this industry, uh, you know, it's just off the ground. Uh, three, four years ago, uh, the focus was just how do we get this power in the ground and how do we get these plants running? Uh, nobody was really thinking about how do we optimize these plants and operate them in an effective way. I mean, everybody had operations uh, strategies, but it wasn't a focus. We're now moving to a point where uh, we can put power uh, in the ground and get it running very quickly. We've got some very innovative things that have happened over the last years. And now we're transitioning to how do we really optimize the energy production of these plants and drive the cash flow models uh, that the investors expect. And that's really what I think we need to do as a collective uh, you know, group of leaders in the industry. We need to raise our, our maturity level and, del- and deliver at a world-class level to make sure these plants uh, deliver on their promises. So, Chuck, you know, you talk a lot about hardware and the, the issue of sheep uh, messing with, with equipment, yeah. and I completely understand that. But there's this whole other part of big data that is a huge piece of what you all do. And I'd be really interested to hear kind of what are you doing with that data? It strikes me that that's going to enable your services to become much more cost effective because you'll be able to find out so much more about what's going on. Um, and yet I'm sure there's some challenges with that too. But I, so I'd love to hear what your, what your thoughts are about the data, the kind of the brains as you talk about it. And I'd love to see your data set on sheep herds too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least use sheep. Don't use goats. They would have eaten the combiner boxes. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, these are very sophisticated uh, pieces of gear and the hardware is a simple piece, right? It, it's really the sophistication of the software uh, that really makes up most of the intellectual property in these machines. We have a wealth of information beyond just a base alarm coming through that allows us to get in and really do analytics on what caused that problem. Or is there uh, something, uh, when you look at a proactive approach, is this thing behaving out of spec relative uh, to the conditions that it's operating in? And these are things that have been done for many, many years in other industries. You come from more classical power plants, you come from IT. The concept of predictive uh, analysis and analytics has been there for years and years and years. There's really an opportunity to step up and deliver that type of sophistication. When you have a third party coming in that doesn't own any of the gear, 
they don't have the bench strength. Uh, they're not going to be able to provide that level of uh, analytics. And that's what's really going to propel us forward. That's what's going to get us, uh, you know, the extra, uh, you know, 2%, 4% out of the operational state of the, uh, the plant. And on these big plants, that equals a lot of money. Yeah, I think, you know, on that point, there's a lot of um, megawatts, particularly in the United States, that are sort of sitting there not quite able to hit their rate of return. I mean, they're sort of in that 7% rate of return range, which is not quite uh, financeable. And it does seem like, you know, having a good operator like you guys coming in and generating 2 to 4% more energy output could actually bring those plants to sort of 8% return, which is where that, where that heads. But I'm just trying to figure out how, you know, how you guys, you know, approach the marketplace such that you can really take uh, projects that are, um, that are, you know, not slated to be built right now through 2016, and how do you actually get them over to the other side of the line? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the financing side of this, right, most O&M constructs have to be in place before you're going to get financing. And um, I think today the way that uh, we've observed that is it's just a matter you need to hit the check boxes, right? So there's no real qualification of that O&M provider and what value they can bring to bear. It's just simply, yes, I've got this area covered, hence I can get financing. But if you can shave, uh, you know, a half a point off the loan structure or if you can uh, show uh, through demonstrated results that you can drive uh, an extra percent or a percent and a half on availability that yields actually ener energy production, you can go to those investors uh, and actually put a different kind of construct together regarding financing and the type of O&M structure, right? There's a lot of uh, uh, opportunity there. So that's what we're doing. We're moving upstream, not dealing with after the fact plants. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of orphan plants out there that need support. We certainly uh, get a lot of those calls, but we're moving up into the investor, uh, the developer and the banking uh, levels to try to show them the benefit that proactive O&M means relative to a, a levelized cost of energy over the life of the plant. Um, I gave a presentation last week around LCOE and the, the essence of it is you got your capital uh, structures, um, but you need to drive that uh, that numerator, numerator uh, up and the denominator down. You need to really make sure that O&M is effectively driving LCOE uh, in the right direction. And we've been able to demonstrate that. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of success is we're moving much further up the food chain uh, in the financing stages of these plants. Chuck Smith is the Executive Vice President for Services at SMA America. Good description of there of why this conversation about O&M is so important, a, uh, a very important but little-known part of the solar industry, I think, for a lot of folks out there. Chuck, good to talk to you. All right. Stephen Jigger, Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. I apologize if Catherine offended you about the Giants. That's all right. <laughs> I know. I know. You know, we're, we're out in, you know, uh, San Francisco is our second biggest city with the most listeners. So I'm sure we have a lot of Giants out the, fans out there who are offended, Catherine. I know. I'm going to get emails. I know I will. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. All right. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. On to our second topic. We haven't talked about net metering in a while, so let's do that. Change is afoot in San Antonio, where CPS Energy, the municipal utility there, is about to propose an alternative to net metering. Uh, the alternative, which wouldn't fully replace net metering right away, is a competitive PPA program. And uh, we're going to talk about it, but first I'm going to describe how it would work very briefly. So a third party would be set up to identify project sites, and it would coordinate with home or business owners, 
hire installation companies and set up a bidding process for projects. It would essentially be the liaison between the utility and the installers. Uh, installers would bid on bundles of projects or individual projects and then offer a power purchase agreement to CPS Energy from the installations. Uh, there's no word yet on the terms of the PPA as the, pro- the program itself is still being worked out. Um, so the person hosting the solar panels would pay their electricity bill like normal, but they'd get a credit from CPS at the end of the month to reflect production and maybe some ancillary services from the inverter. CPS gets to control all the solar on the utility side of the meter and deploy smart inverters as a way to balance out the grid. So in theory, it's a win-win-win. CPS gets the solar on its side of its meter and can make up for fixed grid costs. Installers get a potentially limitless market, assuming the program is not capped. And homeowners essentially get a new leasing option. Uh, And third-party solar services are not allowed in San Antonio. So it opens up a bigger market. So I like this idea in theory, and I've talked to the solar industry and I've talked to the utility, and uh, we'll just we'll talk about their reactions to it. But uh, of course, it depends on how it's structured. Jigger, I want to hear from you. I know details are a little bit slim, but what are your thoughts on the details as they emerge here? Well, I want to start by saying I think Doyle Benneby at CPS has been a real leader in um, trying to figure out how to marry solar with the traditional utility construct. And I think this is a sort of third go around. Um, But I think he's trying his best. And so I think from that perspective, it's good. Um, You know, I think that in this particular case, I think the details really do matter. Um, My understanding is when I've talked to Solar San Antonio about this, that it's one of their board members who came up with the idea. Um, The board of Solar San Antonio is not actually the solar industry. It's a bunch of folks from the local community. And um, they really just wanted to stop fighting CPS, and they thought this might be a good way to, like, stop fighting CPS and and cut a deal. One of the parts of the deal that they cut was that the private sector should have unfettered access to customers outside of this program. Um, It's not clear that CPS is going to honor that commitment. And so if CPS reneges on that, I mean, Solar San Antonio has the votes in the city council to cut the legs out from underneath, underneath this plan from CPS. And so I hope CPS honors their commitment to make sure they are allowing full competition from the private sector. In, in talking to CPS, it sounds like that's what they want to do. They want to continue the net metering and rebate program and then uh, along with that run this pilot program for the PPA. Uh, and the installers are pretty split on it. I mean, I've seen comments from folks involved with Solar San Antonio and some of them are so adamantly opposed. They think this is a way for CPS to control the entire solar industry. And some are extremely excited about it and think that it will bring more competition, assuming it's structured properly. And again, if there's no cap, could create limitless opportunity because it does start to expand solar to maybe low-income people. The utility can target new customer segments. You have this basically a leasing option, uh, third-party hosting option that was not available in San Antonio. Um, I think the big issue for solar San Antonio is that they they are supportive of the idea of a compromise, um, but they want to see potentially other pilot programs run in conjunction with this. So maybe on-bill financing, maybe a minimum bill program like we saw tried to be established in Massachusetts along with net metering so they can experiment. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I didn't get a sense from CPS Energy, but what I do like here is that 
this is where the solar industry is coming together with the utility to say, hey, let's experiment. There are all these interesting ideas we can put on the table. And, and I think that that's a positive sign. Yeah, and it's interesting because Solar San Antonio had a board resolution to CPS Energy's board and San Antonio City Council where they laid out everything. Like, whereas this is what you think, this is whereas this is what we think, whereas here are all the 100 differences that we have. In the end, the resolution was like, let's get together and try to come up with a consensus approach. And the folks I've talked to down there say, hey, if if SSA is on board with this, there, there must be some good stuff going on. Well, I mean, and that's where I think the trouble is. I mean, SSA, you know, I was um, a huge fan of Bill Sinkin, who, you know, just passed away a few years ago. And um, and, I, and I think, you know, it's really through his leadership and, and sheer strength of willpower that CPS has, I think, come around on this area. They, for a long time, were trying to build a nuclear plant with NRG. Um, but, you know, I think the, the big challenge I see with the structure of this is, as I understand it from CPS, they actually want people to sign up to put solar on their house, and they're going to bid it out to local installers to see who do the cheapest price, which seems like a very sort of ham-handed way of approaching this. Why is that um, ham-handed? Well, I mean, if you sign a contract, you actually want to put a system on your house within three or four weeks. You don't want it to take six months because oh, CPS yes. has to do a RFP and all this other stuff. So they should have a standard offer and then say, well, these five or ten or people are – are qualified and we can, you know, allocate them in order or something. Um, and everyone just, you know, agrees to the, the price that, that, that quarter that they, you know, bid or something. But I just, so I think some of those pieces have to get worked out. So this isn't too clumsy. Yep. Um, but like I said, with Arizona public service, I don't have a problem with the utilities finally admitting that solar can be a good thing and that they should actually be a part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Yeah, I think CPS is open to how to structure the program from what I understand. And that's a big issue. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Solar San Antonio and they said the utility, if they want to build out a new platform for billing credits, for structuring the PPAs, doing the bidding process, like it could take them eight months just to build that out. So we might not see this program for a long time. And then the question is, how much time and overhead will this program create in talking to Folks in Arizona, the ratepayer advocate there, I think a lot of people are supportive of the idea of APS getting into the solar industry, but they've found that the, that program is actually more expensive uh, as proposed than standard net metering. So there's a lot to the surprise, details. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that I find really shocking here is that CPS agreed to extend the $1.60 a watt rebate through 2015 which is just going to be outrageous. I mean, that is such a high yeah. rebate. I think the loan providers from Solar City's loan to others are just going to crush it in San Antonio this in, in, through 2015. And as I understand it, they actually lifted the cap on the total amount of money they're going to allocate too, which is a bad idea. So, Well, there might be some lessons to learn here for certain states. So Georgia, for example, is considering scrapping the – 13 cent a kilowatt hour feed in tariff for residential systems and do some sort of competitive bidding process. And perhaps they can look to what CPS is doing. Um, I think a lot of people are worried about that competitive bidding process. However, as we saw this week, certainly working for utility scale solar, Georgia's now procuring like 515 megawatts of solar at an average PPA contract of 6.5 cents a kilowatt hour. So competitive bidding, bidding certainly works, but depending on how it's structured on the residential side, could add a lot of complications. But uh, we'll keep our eyes on, on 
Texas there, San Antonio in particular, I think something that everyone in the industry should be watching. Let's go over to California for our last story and uh, talk about Michael Peavy, who is the president of the California Public Utilities Commission, and he will soon leave the job after 12 years. Peavy said he was going to resign after a ratepayer advocacy group released emails recently showing a cozy relationship between uh, he and the utilities he was supposed to be regulating. And they imply that PV was willing to side with utilities favorably in rate cases and other hearings in exchange for donations to campaigns he supported or to commission events. Uh, technically, the, uh, the activity wasn't illegal, but certainly not acceptable behavior. Uh, and there, there doesn't seem to be definite proof that he came down on a particular side for a utility in exchange for money. There was just a lot of insinuation through these emails. So as California searches for a new president of the CPUC, many are reflecting on PV's legacy, which included very strong support for clean energy and for carbon regulations. Um, And indeed, under PV's watch, California has become a renewable energy powerhouse. Catherine, we'll go to you on this. What do you think we're going to remember about PV years from now? Will will it be this scandal or will it be his role in uh, the clean energy economy in California? It's so interesting because I reached out to a lot of people in California, a a lot of different types of stakeholders. And I said, hey, do you have any reflections as PV leaves? And I got a lot of really interesting responses. Um, Some were kind of like, how much time do you have to chat? Uh, (laughs) I have a lot of opinions. Some people were a little more cagey and said, well, I think change is a good thing generally. Um, And then some other folks were like, look, you know, if it hadn't have been for him, the modernization of the grid in California wouldn't have started. The smart grid technologies wouldn't have, wouldn't be out there. All those meters, which granted some of those caused a kerfuffle, but it wouldn't have happened. So a lot of the technologies that are in place now uh, wouldn't have been there without him. And if you look at sort of the, the good things he did, like you said, pushing renewables, you know, setting aside acres for watershed, um, trying to, um, you know, defeat the Proposition 23 that would have rolled back the greenhouse gas standards there. You know, I think he wanted He's always wanted to do the right thing on clean energy. It's just the way he did it was like, uh, yeah, you know, there was a lot of money going back and forth. And I think there were some things that were pretty um, that I would say the environmental folks would say were not good that he did. Looking in the future, it may be that it looks, you know, that that his legacy is much more positive. So, I mean, I think, look, I think on balance, Mike Peavy has to be given gold stars all around. I mean, you're talking about a guy who got his job in the middle of the California uh, energy crisis with Gray Davis, got California out of it, and then somehow had the strength to preserve 140,000 acres of land around PG&E dams for posterity. So on balance, I think Mike Peavy has been extraordinary. I think, I mean, the only criticisms I've had of Mike is that in general, he has been trying to be 50-50 with the utility. And so in some ways, I think he's been impeding utility 2.0 in the future of the utility business model because he just can't get his mind wrapped around how to transition the utility in one piece to the future. And so he's been holding back a lot of innovation because I think he's been trying to figure out how to bring the utilities along profitably. Well, that's not what my guys who work in smart grid were telling me. I mean, they, they really say they owe a lot to him for, for getting some of those modernizing technologies out there. Oh, I have no, no doubt in my mind, but the way he did it was he 
rate based it for the utilities. In PG&E's case, he did it like for four different generations of smart meters. I mean, raping and pillaging the ratepayers the entire way. So, like, I don't, I, I don't think that he's been against innovation, but I think he's been for it when it's about rate-basing technology. I think he's had a hard time with demand response, load control. He's had a hard time with figuring out how to do distributed solar. I think a lot of these other areas where, you know, it wasn't clear whether the utility was a winner or a loser, I think he's been very slow, slow at that. Is this uh, kind of pay-for-play or this cozy relationship between regulators and utilities, is this something that's common, Catherine? Or, you know, I can't really get a sense of, how often this happens on the utility regulatory level? Oh, it totally depends on the state. <laughs> so there are, you know, there are states where they are, it's like a revolving door. Uh, but then there are other ones where, you know, it's more that the con- that the consumer advocates and the regulators are more on the same side. So it really is state by state. But I will say just in everything that I've done with states and with commissioners, and with whether it's federal or state commissioners, everything is just so by the rules and you have to follow all these ex parte rules and file everything if you have any conversations about a proceeding. Um, and so I've in all of my dealings, it's always been super formal. Um, and so this is always fascinating to me to sort of see uh, a little bit behind the curtain of well, what it goes sounds, on. It sounds like it's supposed to be formal in California, but PV just didn't follow the rules. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, think they're going to have to reform some of their contribution rules, actually, because a lot of this stuff was not illegal. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, I don't think Mike Peavy did things that crossed the line into a definite sort of like, you know, illegal activity zone. Um, but the fact of the matter is electric utilities for over 50 years have been the largest donor to local races, whether it's governor races, local legislator races, et cetera. You know, Mike Peavy's wife, I think, is an elected official. Um and probably receives tons of campaign donations from these utilities. And, you know, ultimately there are a lot of cozy relationships. I mean, hell, Jim Rogers used to basically say you only had 10 customers, the people that were on the commissions. Um, and so, look, I think that, um, I mean, this kind of stuff happens. And when you saw the 44 hours worth of tapes on how the Fed has been captured by Goldman Sachs. That's right. Um, that came out. So I think this kind of stuff happens all the time. But on, on balance, I think people should give PV a you know, solid A for his performance for the last 12 years. I think, you know, I, I reserve the plus um, because I think he wasn't able to move to utility 2.0. But, um, but I think he was a really solid commissioner and we were lucky to have him. All right. That, that is the end of the show. But before we stop here, we will tell our listeners something they don't know. And we are going to go to you first, Catherine. Tell us something we do not know. Okay. Well, you may know that Rick Scott is trying to get over the fact that he didn't have a fan pointed at his legs during his uh, his debate with Charlie Crist last night. But at the same day, Solar City finally announced their bond offering, which they hope to raise two hundred million dollars by <laughs> by offering bonds, um, which, which you could just buy for a thousand bucks, and all you have to do is be a U.S. citizen and have a U.S. bank account. So it's pretty cool because it's really democratizing some investment in solar and um, solar city thinks they have the right kind of model to do it man if i weren't reporting on these companies i would be all over that <laughs> jigger tell us something we don't know well i you know, i just wanted to point our listeners to a story that rob day did on green tech media around 
defending sort of LED lights from the allegations of rebound effect that um, the Breakthrough Institute sort of laid on uh, the positive LED uh, Nobel Prize story in the New York Times. Um, he really takes down the, the Breakthrough Institute's um, uh, op-ed very effectively in a way that, you know, frankly, most of us just can't be bothered to read all of the crap that comes out of their mouth. But um, he did a great job of it. And I think it's it really goes to why the Breakthrough Institute is so unsuccessful in its work. Well, I have to say, the rebound effect is certainly something that should concern us all, and we should look into more. Uh, Rob's piece was pretty good. In fact, he looked at the data behind the Breakthrough Institute's uh, article, some of the studies, and found that the data wasn't as consistent for the rebound effect of LEDs, of lighting in general. So check out that article. Um, pretty good, I think, even-handed take on the, the op-ed from the Breakthrough Institute after the Nobel Prize Award for LEDs. Uh, greentechmedia.com, of course. And I will wrap up with two quick notes. The first is actually a correction. Uh, Jigger, you said last week or a couple weeks ago that, I think it was last week, that Energy's Yield Co. was full of fossil fuels, including coal, and it turns out there's no coal in there. And on, on their website, they say as of the end of June, the contracted portfolio includes four natural gas plants, um, or dual-fired facilities, 10 utility-scale solar and wind generation facilities, and two portfolios of distributed solar facilities. So, Yep, I stand corrected. And then cool. a quick update to our conversation on fracking from a couple weeks ago. We were kind of speculating what price oil or gas would need to be at to make unconventional drilling operations uh, uneconomic. Well, as reporters in Bloomberg wrote in a piece Wednesday, OPEC countries are trying to test just that at least for oil. Uh, so the oil market is considered a bear market right now as prices have dropped uh, about 20 bucks a barrel since June, I think. And instead of cutting production, as uh, might be expected, analysts are saying that Saudi Arabia and Kuwait are keeping the spigots open in an attempt to test the price sensitivity of fracked oil and of tar sands coming out of uh, North America. So the conclusion here actually surprised me. This is why I bring it up, because all the analysts, including an expert at the International Energy Agency, said that most U.S. oil fracking operations could be sustained profitably with oil prices around $60 a barrel. Now, at nine, even at 80 and 90 a barrel, it's at $80 a barrel right now. Uh, you know, some of them are uneconomic, but really a lot of the operations can sustain even around $60 a barrel and some at $50 a barrel. And this goes back to what we were chatting about. You know, there are some technology operation and operational unknowns that we need to consider. And like solar and wind developers, drillers are getting a lot more efficient and cost-effective at tapping this stuff. Uh, so tar sands uh, would suffer the most, and it looks like about a quarter of those projects in Canada would need prices, oil prices above $80 to be economic. So uh, this is a period where we're going to test, test the idea that we can kill the dirtiest fossil fuels by lowering oil prices. And I think we're going to soon find out what that floor is. Yeah, it's about the $70 billion a year we're investing in new drilling. We'll see how much that goes down. Indeed. Well, that is the end of the show. If you want to connect with us, follow each of us on Twitter. We're easy to find. Or you can follow the Energy Gang account as well. To send us story ideas, comments, corrections, anything at all, shoot me an email. It is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. 
And for links to stories we chatted about, go on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Thanks to SMA for sponsoring the podcast. We do appreciate their support. And as always, thank you to all of you out there for listening. Catherine, have an excellent end of your weekend weekend, as always. Thanks, you too. Jigger, uh, we'll see you at Solar Power International next week, right? Yep, a lot of fun. Excellent. And we'll have a roundup of what was going on at the conference and uh, we'll be podcasting next Friday after we all get back. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Music.